You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. North Koreans have been accused of breaking into banks, not just to steal the money, but to control cash points. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns with an interview with Jeff White. He's a reporter from the BBC and co-host of the Lazarus Heist podcast. All right, Joe, before we dig into our stories this week, we have a little bit of follow-up from one of our listeners. What do we have here? It's a question, actually, that comes from Mike. All right. And Mike says, hi, I'm a retired software engineer. I have a solid background in computer science. I know how networks, operating systems, compilers, et cetera, work, which is actually rare among modern computer science graduates. (laughs) Um, They understand uh, compilers, but they may not understand networks or operating systems. Hmm. However, I know very little about cybersecurity, and I'd like to get educated. Then volunteer to help nonprofits or small businesses protect themselves from cyber threats. Any recommendations? Is the TIAA Security Plus cert the best place to start? Hmm. I'm going to say yes. The TIAA Security Plus cert is the best certification to start with. Okay. There are tons of online training that can get you up to speed pretty quickly. There's Cybrary that has uh, free online training that's Mm. based out of Baltimore. Yep. Get you set up with some basic cybersecurity stuff. Take a look at that. If you're a retired software engineer, I think this material is going to be very approachable for you. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be challenging at all. If you have come from a technical background, you can leverage that to help yourself pick this stuff up faster. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this listener even needs a certification? If he's setting out to do volunteer work, is that necessary? Uh, probably not. Charities are not going to go, oh, you're going to help us with volunteering? Well, let me see your certifications. Right? <laughs> right. They, don't, they don't really have a, a tendency to do that. They will say, well, we'll be grateful for anything you can give us. The Security Plus certification is pretty straightforward and easy to get. Mm. I wouldn't recommend going out and getting a CISSP to do volunteer work right. or become a, uh, you know, become a certified ethical hacker. The Security Plus, I think, is, if nothing else, read the materials for the test prep. It's pretty rudimentary, and, and with the basic understanding of network, or the rather advanced understanding of network that someone with, a, with an older computer science degree has, it, it should not be challenging material at all. It should okay. be very approachable. All right. Well, thanks to our listener for sending in that question. We would love to hear from you. You can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's dig into our stories this week. Uh, I'm going to kick things off for us. This is a story from Brian Krebs over at Krebs on Security, mm-hmm. uh, and it's titled How Cyber Sleuths Cracked an ATM Shimmer Gang. Hmm. Are you familiar with uh, ATM shimming at all? You said shimmer, and I thought like like uh, like light shimmering off right, water, like right? Like glint, yes. yes. <laughs> I know, that's what I thought first, too. <laughs> so is this some sort of sparkly attack on, on ATMs? Right. <laughs> no. Is this something that criminals put on top of the ATM and then it skims the car? Is like a skimmer? Sort of. So a skimmer, you know, most skimmers uh, sort of get grafted on to the outside of the ATM, like a barnacle, right? right. Yeah, a very convincing barnacle. <laughs> right, exactly. They, they look, they, exactly, they're very convincing um, and chances are you probably wouldn't notice it. What a shim does is it actually goes inside the slot. Uh-huh. And in this case, law enforcement were were kind of um, bedeviled by this particular shimming case where these shims were being put inside of the ATMs 
And the way that it worked, they were able to draw power from the ATM itself using the connections, the little um, contacts that connect with your card, with your ATM card. The article has a picture of the device here, and it's got what looks like essentially a little pass-through, Yep, uh, you know, electric pass-through that has contacts on both sides, so it can do just that, draw power. Right, exactly. And so uh, evidently this device that they would put in the ATM required very little power. It was mm-hmm. engineered to draw very little power. Right. Uh, it was a very slim device, so it could fit inside of there. So what would happen is uh, the unsuspecting person would come up to use the machine, put their card in as usual, and this device would be kind of a man-in-the-middle sort of attack. Right. Uh, it would suck up their information from their card. But then also what they discovered was they were using a combination of this, this shim, but then also a camera to look over the person's shoulder right, to, to get, get the pin. their pin. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, what's really interesting is how they tracked down who was doing this. Hmm. So most of this shimming was was going on in Mexico. The vast okay. majority of it was going on in Mexico. And uh, evidently, according to this story, that was because some of the chip and pin capabilities were not fully implemented in Mexico. I see. There was, you know, there was a transitional period of time when the chip and pins were new and there's sort of an in-between time. And, and uh, according to this article down in Mexico, they were a little slower than many of the banks here in the U.S. were to go all in on that implementation. Right. So because of that, it made it possible for the bad guys here to take advantage of that. However, they did start showing up here in the U.S. And law enforcement, uh, there was one that showed up at, at an ATM in New York City. And law enforcement were able to combine the security camera footage, right, surveillance footage, right? From from the ATM where the people put it in. Right. They were able to combine that so they knew the time of day that someone was using this machine. They were able to cross-reference the use of a card— a card number, your ATM card has a number on it. Right. Right? It's so like what, a credit card. Exactly. What they noticed was a card in New York had the same card number as a card that was being used in Mexico. Hmm. And once they were able to make that cross-reference and say, hmm, this is interesting, that this this particular card number is the common thing between these machines that have been skimmed, right, that have had this shim device put inside of them. So is this the same are they are the criminals using the same card to install the the shim? Well, what they were able to discover is that the criminals were using a specially equipped card uh-huh. that had a tether on it that was how they would get the numbers off of their shims. I see. So in other words, they would put this special card that they'd made, they'd slide that in, it would connect and the card number that this device pretended to be was the key that unlocked the encryption on the the shimming device and allowed them to get the numbers that they had scooped up. It allowed them to get them back. I see. That's very clever. So even if law enforcement did remove the shim, they would not be able to decode the information on it without the key. Correct. And it turns out that this particular number, <laughs> this credit card number, uh, matched up with a credit card that, that had been issued uh, you know, somewhere, I believe it was in Europe, and it was a credit card that had been reported as being ordered and never delivered. 
So it was just this number that was sort of out there, a legit number had never been activated. And so now the game is afoot, right? right? Because now they have this number. So now they can start looking for every ATM where this number was used. Right. And sure enough, where this number was used, that's where the bad guys were. And every one of them had a shim in it. Every one of them had a shim in it. Right. Right. So uh, eventually they were able to track these folks down and they got their hands on this downloading card that they used. And it, it, there's a picture of it here in the article. I mean, it looks like a, it, it's the shape of a credit card. It's a little bit longer so that this ribbon cable can come off the back of it. Right. And then that connects to a little little circuit board. And so if you put this in the machine, the machine recognizes that this card has the number that triggers the decryption and transfer of all the credit card numbers that this shim had been storing up. That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Why don't these people apply themselves to legitimate work? They'd be rich. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It really is clever. So I, I just think this is fascinating from a lot of different points. First of all, it, it's a really good look inside how these shims work. One of the things that uh, this article pointed out is that after law enforcement ha and banks had discovered the bad guys using these shims, they narrowed the opening on a lot of their ATMs so that it would be harder to get a device like this in there. Okay. Which makes sense. Yeah. They'll adapt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's all cat and mouse. But, right. But, so I was trying to think of, um, you know, in terms of folks trying to protect themselves against this thing, first, I would say go cardless with your payments. If you if, can if use you a, can, yeah. Yeah, if you can use uh, Apple Pay or Google Pay or any of the ones that use uh, an electronic token. Yeah, one-time electronic token. Right. That's going to be better than having to use your card anywhere. Right. Much but, more secure. Yeah. But beyond that, I mean, these, this was very clever, very effective. I'm not sure if you are a user of, of the ATM. I suppose maybe being very vigilant about covering your PIN number as you enter yeah. it in so yeah, that they can't I mean, see it over your shoulder. I try to stand closer to the ATM when I'm entering a PIN. Yeah. Just in case there is something behind me. Mm -hmm. I've always been uncomfortable when there are people nearby. <laughs> hanging over your shoulder. Right, because, you know, I'm always, <laughs> they don't even need to hang over the shoulder, right, to get the pin. They just need to wait for me to get my money and then hit me in the back of the head with something. Right? Well, that's true. And yeah. then, <laughs> I'm like, all right, I got 200 bucks. Bam, I'm on the ground. Yeah. Somebody else has my 200 bucks. That's, right. it's been my fear so much that to the point when I, where I go to an ATM with a friend, I will stand behind the friend and turn around and look out, Right. Uh -huh. So that everybody knows, okay, this is going to be tougher than just hitting one guy. Giving him the evil eye. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, just looking, I'm just looking like the muscle. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the first thing I think of when I look at you, Joe. Right, yeah, look muscle. At that, look at that guy. That, that guy is the muscle. No, <laughs> no doubt about it. All right. Well, that is my story. Uh, again, that's from uh, Brian Krebs over at Krebs on Security, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's an interesting one. Definitely worth checking out to yeah, see all the cool. details. Yeah. All right. What do you have for us, Joe? My story comes from Malwarebytes Labs, which is uh, their research org organization. They have a blog over there. And they're talking about uh, Bitcoin scammers phishing for wallet recovery codes on Twitter. Hmm. So we're all familiar with the scam where uh, somebody is on Twitter complaining about some company, right? Okay. And then an impersonation account jumps in and says, well, let me help you. And they slide into the DMs, right, oh. as they say on Twitter. And they say, hey, go to this page and enter your uh, your login credentials, and we can get started. Oh, right? I see. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, there's a company called Trust Wallet that is a an app on your phone 
that's used to send, receive, and store your Bitcoin. So it's kind of like a wallet and an exchange. Uh, I'm not exactly familiar with how Trust Wallet works. I haven't used it. Mm-hmm. But it lets you uh, work with cryptocurrencies and other non-fungible tokens, as they're called. Okay. One of the things that they say that Trust Wallet has on their official Twitter page is the first rule of crypto is never give out your recovery phrase. Right. The second rule of crypto is never give out your recovery phrase. And the third rule of crypto is when someone asks you for your recovery phrase, remember the first and second rule. Hmm. Right? (laughs) Okay. Because that's exactly what's happening on Twitter. Somebody has posted a tweet that says, thank God I finally got my stolen coin and money back. Now I can rest my head. That's the hook. Okay. But you scroll down a little bit further, and there's another reply that says, I lost all my money and coins last week until I contacted their support page, and they helped me rectify and resolve it. I think if you have any problems, you should write them too, and they provide a URL. Mm. Now, when you go to the URL, if you, if you were uh, unfortunate enough to click on this URL, it is one of these survey uh, development pages. This is one of my earliest projects was building a survey tool for an internal use in a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was interesting to do, but now these tools are out there and everybody has them. So anybody can go and set up a survey. And this survey looks very much like a customer service form, mm-hmm. right? And it has questions like, which of the following issues are you worried about? High fees, login issues, swap or exchange. Uh, and then it says Anders, which I don't know what that means, but it could be others because it has a space next to it, a place where you can put text in. And then it has a field that says, kindly input your 12-word passphrase linked to your wallet account. And then parenthetically, it says, kindly note that this is processed by Trust Wallet Encrypted Cloud Bot. Your security is our priority. Mm-hmm. And, and then it asks you to put the phrase in. How this is supposed to work is you and Trust Wallet establish what this 12-word phrase is, and it's very difficult for someone to guess it. If someone asks you for it, if someone, then you're much more likely to give it up. But Trust Wallet would like to remind everybody, don't do that. There are a lot of Twitter accounts out there doing this. Hmm. And the reason they're doing this is because it is a very low effort attack that has a very high payoff, mm-hmm. right? If people get access to these crypto wallets out there, they can just transfer all the money out of it. And Bitcoin is worth like $30,000 a piece now or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of money. Yeah. It also strikes me that by using these survey sites, that's not going to trip any alarms in terms of it being a dangerous site because they're taking you to a legitimate site. Right. Exactly. That's a very good point. One that I hadn't actually considered when my reading of this article, but (laughs) thank you for bringing that up because that that is absolutely right. This is not a malicious site. You're not going to a scam – you're going to a scam survey on a legitimate site. Right. Right. Interesting. So what are the recommendations then? I mean, how, well, how Dave, do folks protect themselves? The recommendation is never give out your recovery. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard that before. Right. Yeah. And remember that legitimate sites are probably not going to run their customer service organization on a survey site. That's really the biggest thing here is don't give out your recovery phrase. That's that's a secret that you're supposed to have, mm-hmm. uh, and only you are supposed to use it. Right. It's not something that you enter to get support. You should never need to do that. Yeah. If you share it, it's no longer a secret. That's right. Yeah. All right. Interesting story. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Rohit Shivastwa. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at Rohit11. He's a friend of the show. He sent us a bunch of stuff before. And this is actually a piece of mail that was received that Rohit has sent us a picture of. Hmm. 
So do you want to uh, go ahead and give a crack at reading this? Sure. It says, Dear customer, Naptol Online Shopping Private Limited is pleased to inform you that on the occasion of its birthday celebration, the company has selected few of its customers in a random lucky draw contest. We are glad to amaze to inform you that you are one of those lucky customers that the company has selected. It's our ultimate pleasure to announce your winning scratch coupon, which you will be able to redeem by either calling on our toll-free prize helpline number or you can also SMS or WhatsApp the coupon code to our WhatsApp number or visit our website. Please note that this is an internal initiative of the company solely meant for promotional purpose only, and all the prize-related information will only be available on our toll-free prize helpline number. This gift distribution is covered by our banking partner. The coupon value with this letter is guaranteed by HSBC Bank. Redemption rules. Please read term and condition carefully. One, the total amount coupon prize value will be credited directly to your bank account. Two, all government, central and state taxes, processing fees toward the redemption of the prize money will be paid by the winner. Three, the charge levied will be collected in advance and will not be adjusted against the prize money under any circumstances. Four, all payment will be made on terms of state and central government rule. Five, your bank AC no must link with Adhar card and PAN card. Please fill form and send by WhatsApp or mail to us. And what is amazing about this is this picture actually has somebody who has gone out and purchased an HSBC stamp, mm-hmm. like a rubber stamp with an HSBC logo on it. And they've got other stamps down here. This looks really official. Right. 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 I stamped mean, and signed. Approved. Right. <laughs> right. And they are, they are asking for your account. The account holder name, and they give you a bunch of little boxes to write that into, your mm-hmm. your bank account number, your IFSC code, I'm not sure what that is, branch name, a mobile number, bank name, and PAN number if available, Yeah, and then ADHAR number. I'm not sure what all these different numbers I, are. I suspect it's all, you know, banking uh, numbers. Yeah, banking, with the Indian banking system. Right. You know, it's the standard stuff right. in that part of the world. What's interesting is the redemption rules – Item number three says the charge levied will be collected in advance and will not be adjusted against the prize money under any circumstances. Mm. So what they're trying to do <laughs> is trying to prevent people from going, well, okay, well, just send me the money and deduct the fees from it. Uh, they'll say, uh, take kindly take a look at uh, item number three on our on our requirements, on our redemption <laughs> rules. Right, right, right. And just pay us the money and let us scam you. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting that, you know, this, this, as with many we're seeing these days, there's a lot of effort here. When they went to the trouble to design this form, print it out, put these rubber stamps and signatures on it, Mm -hmm. and then put it in an envelope and mail it. Right. Yeah, this Uh, is a high-cost attack. Absolutely. It's not like a phishing email or or spam email where you can just send out millions for a couple bucks. Each one of these things costs whatever it costs to send a letter in India. I don't know. Indian postage rates. Yeah, I guess it works out for him, though. Right. All right. Well, uh, heads up and beware of that. And again, thanks to our listener, Rohit, for sending that to us. We appreciate it. And again, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for our catch of the day, you can send it to us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, it's always great to have Carol Terrio back on the show, and uh, this is no exception to that. This week, she's got an interview with Jeff White. He's a reporter from the BBC and co-host of the Lazarus Heist podcast. Here's Carol Terrio. 
So today we have a pretty fun day. We have with us Jeff White, investigative journalist, author, and broadcaster. He is really one of the UK's top tech specialists. Now, working with BBC World Service, Jeff has created and published a podcast called Lazarus Heist, and it is a hot ticket. Jeff, tell us, when did it first get published? Uh, feels like a long time. It's beginning of April. I think it was the first week of April was, was episode one. And we're now up to episode five. So yeah, it must be five weeks by now. Yes. Yeah. So why don't you kick us off and give us the premise of the show? This, this is the inside story of North Korea's cyber army. So the Lazarus heist of the title refers to, of course, the attempted billion dollar hack on Bangladesh Bank. Um, which we go to in great detail and just keeps giving and giving. We also go into the Sony hack, which again is attributed to North Korea. Obviously, North Korea have denied a lot of this stuff, uh, FBI accusations. But we also talk about life in North Korea. We've got this amazing co-presenter, Jean Lee, who spent eight years as a journalist inside North Korea. And she's got all this amazing insight into just how North Korean society works and how on earth, you know, a society where most people can't even access the internet can give rise to computer hackers. How does that even work? I think that makes this podcast so interesting because you're sitting there saying this is what's going on in the world of cybercrime during this time. And your co-host, Jean, is telling us what is going on actually in North Korea at the time because she was there. Exactly so, yeah. And interestingly, she'd witnessed the rise of computing in North Korea because to say that North Korea doesn't have computers is obviously false. But she saw these computers and this sudden emphasis. They even had a a theme song for computers in North Korea, as as they tend to in communist countries. and she thought, well, there's got, to be another, there's got to be other explanations for this. It can't just be, you know, let's pull North Korea into the computerized society. You know, there's got to be some military application for this. Because, of course, in North Korea, there's always a military application for things. And so she's been really interested in, in you know, the cyber side. So we're sort of seeing it from both ends of the telescope, I guess you could say. So you kick off the podcast with the infamous Sony Pictures hack from 2014. And in fact, the entire podcast covers the cybercrime activity conducted by the Lazarus Group. And I guess that's why your podcast is called Lazarus Heights. Indeed. Indeed. Well spotted. Thanks, genius at work here. Okay, so let's start with the Sony Pictures hack. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about why this hack actually happened. Well, this, the, the reason this has been attributed to North Korea is um, Sony famously had a film that they were making called The Interview, um, uh, written by Seth Rogen, um, who also starred in the film. And this was a, uh, the subplot was uh, an assassination of Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. And again, one of the things that's fascinating talking to my co-host, Gene Lee, is just how offensive that would be. I mean, you're talking within North Korea, it would be like you know, the, the thing with the Prophet Muhammad and Islam, it is that level of offence that you've caused by saying all of that. Sony went ahead with the film after taking some advice. Um, and the, the strong suspicion, certainly on the part of the FBI, is North Korea took unkindly to this and hacked into Sony. And what was remarkable was the way that hack was, was perpetrated, first of all, but what they did afterwards, the, the, the incredibly cynical and meticulously managed campaign to leak the information they'd stolen to do Sony the maximum PR damage. It was almost like somebody had done a, a course in, in destructive PR and how you leak things to cause the most damage to your target, to your victim. And the North Koreans did that, uh, certainly according to the FBI. And, and Sony, I mean, there was just a slew of embarrassing headlines. And of course, in the end, the film got canned. Um, a lot of Sony senior staff uh, moved on. So it was, it was a very painful, very painful experience for Sony. And not just Sony Pictures, but 
uh, producers, actors, celebrities. Yes, yes. They, they, they basically stole, from the looks of it, the entire email spool within Sony Pictures Entertainment. So every email that everybody sent to everybody else within Sony for a certain period of time. And of course, you know, there's gossip in the film industry. You can understand that. Some of this gossip got very, very embarrassing for those concerned. There were headlines about Angelina Jolie being called a spoiled brat. I don't want to call it banter because that underplays it, but the kind of stuff that goes on in offices that shouldn't go on, but you never think will hit the headlines. And suddenly, and by the way, the North Koreans were emailing journalists at publications and saying, hey, have you looked at this leak? Because there's a story in there you should cover. They were urging journalists to cover these individual stories. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. It's like all systems go to make Sony really feel the pain. Now, what other Lazarus attacks do you cover? Uh, so yes, the Lazarus Group's been been pinned for a number of things. We go on to cover the Bangladesh Bank story, which is the now infamous billion dollar attempted theft from Bangladesh Bank. Money then stolen from Bangladesh Bank's accounts in New York, laundered through the Philippines and Sri Lanka, laundered through casinos in the Philippines. There is also a connection to Japan, which we explore, and multiple links back to Macau. And Macau has for a very long period of time been sort of North Korea's financial conduit to the outside world, if you like. It's, it's where money and goods and people and services go in and out of North Korea. Because um, obviously North Korea is sort of sealed off much, uh, for much of that from the outside world. So we cover the whole Bangladesh Bank case and a um, bit of a spoiler alert, but the end episode is the WannaCry story, which again, the WannaCry ransomware attack 2017 attributed to, uh, to, to North Korea, certainly by the FBI and others. What's pretty remarkable about this podcast is you're talking about pretty complex attack vectors here, but somehow you're able to make it so accessible to non, you know, IT security people. I mean, this, this all grew out of a chapter of a book I wrote last year called Crime.com. And the reason I pitched this chapter for a podcast was it is hands down the most compelling and filmic cyber attack. I mean, it's in terms of the Bangladesh Bank heist and to a certain extent Sony, it's almost like these hackers have watched you know, a heist movie like Ocean's Eleven or, or you know, LA Takedown or whatever. And they've, they've thought, well, we do that in cyberspace. And then they've actually done it and carried it out. It's, it's almost like scene for scene. There are certain scenes you have in a film that take place almost exactly the same, but in cyberspace. So it's, it's incredibly accessible. It's obviously got the heist plot at the heart of it. And that's the sort of spine of the story. But that's what I'm always looking for as a journalist is these opportunities to explain to people how this stuff works, but explain it in a kind of compelling and, and gripping way, which I hope the podcast uh, does. I mean, it's a pretty cool way to learn about cybersecurity and how to be more safe by listening to this podcast for sure. Now, what did you learn? I mean, you're pretty au fait with all things cyber and technologies. Yes, absolutely. I mean, for starters, to say, working with Gene Lee, my co-host, has been just an incredible experience to find out so much more about North Korea and how North Korean society works and how North Korean computer technology and computer society works. That's been, that's been amazing. We've also squirreled out. I mean, I thought I knew the Bangladesh Bank heist back to front, but we've, we found out stuff. I, bits of information I, I, I never knew. I mean, I always knew they were going to send $80 million of the stolen money through the Philippines. What did it, through, through four bank accounts. What I didn't realize was their plan was to send the entire 951 million that they were intended to steal all of it was going to go through those four bank accounts in the Philippines. So they, wow. they were going to end up with, with because they withdrew this in, in cash eventually, I think their plan may have been to, to have $951 million in banknotes sitting in the Philippines. <laughs> and they suspicious, really. Amazing. But the other thing, and this isn't in the podcast, but um, 
again, spoiler alert, it looks like there may be a book of the podcast coming out. And if, if there is, this will be in it. That's exciting. Subsequently, the, the, the North Koreans have been accused of breaking into banks, not just to steal the money, but to control cash points. They've managed to make it so they can, they can jackpot the cash points. So you can basically withdraw as much money as you like at cash points around the world, and it will all be attributed back to the victim bank. Now, what's amazing about that is you're not just talking about like smuggling money to one country like the Philippines. You're talking about, well, 29 different countries in one case. So you've got dudes running around with cash, literal wads of cash in 29 different countries. How do you get that cash back to, if it is North Korea, how do you get it back to Pyongyang? There's this entire network. I mean, more and more is coming out about these cases. There's connections to money launderers in the Philippines, to Canada. There's banks in Romania. So I suspect really over the next few months, certainly as I do more digging um, for, for, the, for any potential book that comes out of it, there's loads more to go that exposes this intersection between North Korean government cyber activity and, you know, organised crime. Basically, the people who send mules to cash points with cash cards. That's what's to come out. And that's the really, for me, the really interesting stuff. God, it's like the more you dig, the more you find. Jeff White, thank you so much for coming on Hacking Humans and discussing your podcast, Lazarus Heist. Not to be missed, folks. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right, Joe, what do you think? Interesting interview. I am definitely going to have to check out the Lazarus Heist podcast. Yeah, um, yeah I've listened to some of it, and, and it is... Uh, it is compelling. Right. <laughs> it's really a good story. Yeah. Uh, and that's really what makes a good podcast sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Jeff talks about how it seems like someone took a course in negative PR with the information they received from Sony. This is how a lot of oppressive regimes operate on a daily basis. The hard part for them is getting the information. But once they got the information from the cyber attack, doing the most damage to them is second nature, I think. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm actually not surprised by that. When that hack came out, I'm like, Sony's going to have a, a lot of problems here. Yeah. Uh, because communist oppressive regimes are really, really, really good at propaganda. Yeah. That's why they're in charge. Yeah. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Hmm. Uh, do you remember Sony's response to all of this? Well, which, uh, no, not specifically. What, what, what are you speaking of? I think what they did was the exact right thing. They said, we're going to let everybody watch The Dictator for free. Mm, mm. They put it out there and you could just watch it. Right, right. Now, mm -hmm. this is one of those things where uh, I've actually seen the movie, and it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's kind of a slog to get through. <laughs> you <laughs> okay. know, it's. Have you seen it? No, I've not. Yeah, it's. Eh, it's not worth it. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, but you know, it's one of those things that if if uh, North Korea didn't do anything, it would have been less of a story than what it was because they attacked Sony. Right. Just been. Might have been a movie that came and went without right, exactly. very much notice. Yep. Okay. Uh, on the Bangladesh robbery, I'm amazed that these guys are trying to collect just a billion dollars in cash, right? Mm -hmm. That that's their plan. Uh, you know how much a billion dollars in cash weighs? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on what, what size bills you use, but you no know, matter what, it's gonna uh, yes, a thousand million dollars. It's right. gonna take it's gonna take a little bit of effort. Right. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Right. And the Money Mule network must be huge. It has to be. And and uh, Jeff kind of alludes to this. They almost have to be subcontracting with organized crime for this. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story. It's a good interview. I am going to definitely check out this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Jeff for joining us. And, of course, thanks to Carol Terrio for providing that interview for us. Uh, and, of course, if you want to hear more from Carol, she is the co-host of the Smashing Security Podcast. Another great security podcast. Another great security podcast. Definitely worth your time. 
All right. Well, that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. And we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 